0: to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I was in the office a little bit earlier, and I'm probably not supposed to be in there because I overhear Brother Tom and Brother Rudy talking, and... Uh, who's kind of just mentioned offhand that in this day and age, Christianity lives as if God is small. And not so much that they're not only unwilling to trust him for pretty near anything, but they don't live as if he's God. They live in a way that's uh, shallow, irreverent, they call themselves Christians, and I don't judge them. I, I don't know, but it's obvious if you ever visit somewhere else. That's one thing that i found: it If I go uh, anywhere else and I visit a church, either with other family or, you know, whatever you would do if you go away somewhere, is is to, and I don't mean to say this wrong. I'm not trying to be judgmental in a sense that I know their heart But when a good majority of the people, and especially people you're sitting next to, are wearing, you know, uh, running pants and flip-flops on a Sunday morning, or shorts and flip-flops and different attire that just reflects to me something's not really right in their attitude. It's not that you can't make a judgment. Some people come to church here probably in the best clothes they have. And it really isn't about cleaning up the outside, is it? But the outside does reflect. The way we live our lives reflects who we are. There's no two ways about that one. How you live is an expression of who you are. This church, this assembly of people is an expression in this community of what we believe and who we are. Whether good or bad. There's no two ways about it. We're not, we're not fooling anybody. It's just the way it is. So in 2 Corinthians, if you're there already, we're going to start in verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. in him. There's so many topics, so many subjects, so many ways that you could go with that passage and hopefully I'll get through it. I mean, I really do want to, from what I see in here, even if it's just a sliver of truth that's in there, I want to carry it all the way through. But Paul, if you look back a few verses from there at verse 9, He's he's telling these people, he just got done explaining how the love of Christ is compelling him or constraining him, has a tight grip on him. But in verse 9, he says, says, let's go back to verse 8, we are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. And he goes on to say, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Verse 11, Therefore, knowing, there, knowing therefore the terror or fear of the Lord, he does what? Persuades men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Would you say that Paul in those few verses there, has a very light attitude about God. Do you do you think he views God as someone that it really doesn't matter how I live because it's all grace? I mean, he, he, he's going to go on and explain, and we already read it, where we've been reconciled. We have been reconciled to God, and that's a very good topic, which I hope to get to tonight. But he's saying that he's been reconciled. But even Paul, the apostle, and we know if you read his writings, he was doing all he could to live the life, wasn't he? He made it, and he's telling us here, and he's telling the Corinthians here, that he made it his aim, whether he lived or died. He was going to live pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because he knew that if, if he didn't do enough good works, he wouldn't make it it's not what he's saying is it we know better than that there's something about the attitude that the apostle has here and he's conveying to these corinthians who we know their church was you know had a few problems but he's conveying to these people that listen how you live does matter nobody in this room will ever do enough good works To attain the righteousness in which only Jesus Christ provides for us. But there's something in this passage that tells us that we should be living right. There's a lot of motives for living right. Some people live right because they really do. They think they're earning their way to heaven. They think that by a lot of good works and good living, they're going to, you know, store up enough points and we'll see in a, in a little bit here, it doesn't matter how many points or how many good things we do, we can never reconcile the account. We will always come up short. It's not about good works trying to attain salvation. It is about knowing the God in whom we live for, who we are saved by, what He's like and how he will judge his people. So Paul, in verse he does say in verse 10 that we all are going to stand before or appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and that's thought to really be believers only. But there's a judgment coming regardless for all. There's a judgment coming. The whole world wants to believe there's no judgment, and that's why they live the way they do. But there will be an accounting, won't there? But when it comes to that verse there, one person wrote, it, wrote in explanation or a, a, a sentence or a paragraph two about that verse. He said, The teaching about the judgment seat before which all believers must come reminds us that we have been saved not for a life of aimlessness or indifference, but to live as unto the Lord. This doctrine of the universality of the judgment of believers preserves the moral seriousness of God. The sure prospect of the judgment seat reminds the Corinthians and all believers that while they are righteous in Christ by faith alone, the faith that justifies is to be expressed by love and obedience and by pleasing the Lord. Can you agree with that? Maybe not. I do. There's something about... Justifying faith that causes us to live a certain way. I mean, we all know this. Faith without works is dead. There is no such thing as faith without works. But in verse 11, Paul says this. He says, He says this. Knowing therefore the terror, or your translation probably says, fear of the Lord. And that word there for terror or fear is phobos. It really does have the idea of almost an alarm. A fear, not just this, just a reverential awe that God is bigger than me. This is, this is Paul telling these people, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And when we persuade somebody, what are we, what are we doing? I mean, if Paul says, listen, I know something. I know the terror of the Lord. I know the fear of what this judgment and what's standing before the judge and creator of all of us is going to be. Now, you think Paul wasn't afraid to go on to meet the Lord, was he? Because it's whether I be in the body or not. He was not afraid, and neither do we need to be. 1 John four seventeen says what? That we can have confidence in the day of judgment. For as he is, so are we. In this world, there's something about the way we're living, then, isn't it? It's about love being perfected. And thereby, when we have perfected love in our lives, we have confidence because we are living right. But when we persuade somebody, as Paul's doing here, he's using it's the idea of, of using reason. He's not just hammering them with the Bible, he's he's explaining. And hopefully, by now, you know that this church does a lot of explaining. Nobody really gets up here and speaks for 15 minutes in a casual manner, like it doesn't matter what we say as long as we fill 50 minutes or an hour and 10 or whatever it is. Explaining is necessary. So he's persuading these people, but what is he doing? In verse 14, he goes on and says, For the love of Christ constrains or compels us and whether or not you read that and say well is this the love of Christ for me or Paul's love love for Christ therefore that's his motivation I think it could be both if you understand that God loves you Christ loves you will you live a certain way or will if you have a great love for him will you live a certain way I think so. Your motivation is not only that you know the fear of the Lord, but you love Him in such a way, and you understand His great love for you compels or constrains or holds you in such tight quarters that this is how I live. See, Christianity on a whole doesn't seem to get that. There's something in a disconnect because you go places where it's just all grace. and I, I, It doesn't matter really what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how I present myself to the world. It does not matter. God is all forgiving. He's all grace. And he loves me. Well, if they really truly understood what his love cost him to reconcile us to himself... I think their lives would be lived a little differently. But he says that the love of Christ compels or constrains him because he judges this. And this is what he judges. He says that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. What's the logic? The logic isn't that complicated there. The logic is is that if Christ died for all of you, if Christ died for all of you, then the conclusion is you were all dead. You were all dead. If any of you weren't dead, if any of you were alive to God and had perfect communion with Him and had no break... In the relationship, no barrier of sin. Christ need not die for you, did he? But we know, and Paul says here, that knowing that Christ died for all, we judge then that all were dead. We all start in the same boat, don't we? We all start with the same leg in the grave. Both legs in the grave. When we're born. But Christ died for all, therefore all have died. We know that, I'm not going to preach the gospel as simply as it could be, but we all know that when we're born, we're born in Adam, right? We're all born in Adam. He who sinned in the beginning and brought condemnation and death to all of humanity. And because we live there, John tells us in his gospel, that he who does not believe is condemned already, and that he who does not believe the wrath of God God abides upon him. Is that where we all were at one point? Or were you, as I've talked to at least one other guy in my life who said I was born a Christian, and I didn't quite know what to say to that man. Now, I've, I've always been a Christian. I'm thinking, wow, we have an exception. I found him but I really didn't know what to say. (laughs) But we know that God is a just judge. Psalm 711 says, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Is that the same God that you serve? Is that the same God that you live for? The one who is angry with the wicked every day? Do you see him that way? Because he is. How serious, then, is this death that he talks about Jesus having to die for? If he had to die for you because you were dead, how serious are the consequences of him not dying for you or you not receiving the gift that he offers? Because in Mark 9, we all know what it says in Mark 9 43 through 48, just write it down. I'm just going to quote it. I just want to give you the gist of it. If your eye offend you, what are you to do? Pluck it out. For why? It would be better. It would be better for you to go into the kingdom with one eye than go seeing into hell. Or if your hand offends you, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off, because it would be better to go in there with one hand into his kingdom, into heaven, than into hell with both. The same thing with your foot. Because he says, listen, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, one foot, and one hand, than go to hell and into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And you realize there's no good news apart from judgment. There's no good news without the knowledge of judgment, is there? If there's no judgment, then what's the good news? If there's no judgment, if there's no need to be reconciled to God, then why did Jesus bother? Because it's that serious. So Paul, because he knows the terror of the Lord, seeks to persuade men. And it's the love of Christ that compels or constrains or has a tight hold on him because he knows that Christ died for all because all were dead. So he's compelling them for some reason. He's trying to persuade them to do something, to be something, to receive something because the terror of the Lord is nothing we take lightly. I hope you don't. I hope it crosses your mind once in a while of the seriousness of what it will mean one day when you by yourself will stand before Christ and give an account for everything you've done with your life, whether good or bad. Is that trite? Is that trivial? Does that mean nothing to us? Is that just, well, you know, it won't matter Jesus loves me, it's not about my sins condemning me to hell, so it really doesn't matter. Well, yes, it does. You're still dealing with a God who's fearful. So he says in verse 15, "If if he died for all, if he died for you, He says, then those who live, in other words, if because he died for you and you now have life because of him, which I hope everyone in this room has, if you have life given to you by him because he died for you, he says that we should live no longer for themselves or ourselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So we can we say just in those few verses that Paul has this knowledge that this judgment seat of Christ will involve some terrifying moments and that all will appear there there's no exclusions there's nobody going to be left out you're not going to get you know an exemption pass from this And you will be there by yourself. You won't have Brother Tom there holding your hand, telling you it'll be okay. I'm here. Because Brother Tom will be there too. In fear. Or some sense of confidence. But it'll still be frightening. So he knows that this is a fearful thing. And he understands that men are going to be judged by the works that they do throughout their whole life. So he's trying to compel them or persuade them to do something. So in verse 16, he says something kind of interesting, I thought. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer Paul's estimation of people if if you if Christ if you were dead if Thomas was dead in his trespasses and sins and Christ died for him and made him alive should I then have an estimation of him based on carnal worldly estimations or because he has been bought with a price and he is now one of God's children what's my estimation supposed to be then of him? Paul's saying listen, I. it's not that he didn't know who men were in the flesh that would be ridiculous to think like that he didn't he didn't uh, it's not that he didn't know but he didn't regard or he didn't estimate people based on who they were in the flesh. He was basing it on the fact that they were all dead. Everyone was dead, and Christ had to die for them. And now, I don't estimate them as a Jew, a Gentile, a Crete, whatever you want to call them. He wasn't making those kinds of estimations of who they were. He wasn't looking at them going... You're from the south, you're from the north, you're from the east, you're rich, you're poor. None of that mattered. He's saying, listen, if all were dead and Christ died for all, and now those who live are because of him, I don't judge or place an estimation on them based on fleshly values. But he goes on to say what? He says, even though... He says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Does that mean Paul, of course, Paul heard of Jesus? Is he saying that that he didn't know who Jesus was in a natural sense? He didn't understand that Jesus was a Jew from from Nazareth? What's he saying? He's not even placing that estimation on Christ, who died and rose again. He's saying, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. It's not that he didn't know of the historical Christ. Paul, as the Jew Pharisee of Pharisees, religiously zealous, would have estimated him how in the flesh. How would Paul have estimated Christ if he would have seen him on the street and heard his teaching? He'd have been like all the other Pharisees, right? Who placed their estimation and said what? Another crackpot. Another common man that's out there leading the people astray. And you know what? When he died on a cross, he got what he deserved. That was his estimation in the natural. And that was our estimation of Jesus Christ in the natural. We looked at him and thought, yeah, he's a good man. I mean, I'm talking about before you were saved, before God opened your eyes and you knew him differently. But you judged him as just some wonderful prophet maybe, a great teacher. Maybe the cross didn't make a lot of sense to you. And here's the reason. When we look at things in the natural, when we judge things and we judge each other purely by natural means, and we only see events in people's lives, when we view the events of Jesus' life, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, when we were to view all those as events, they mean nothing without interpretation. They just become events. There's just another man died on a cross. But Paul now knows more than just a natural estimation of Christ. And I hope everyone in this room knows Christ with more of an estimation than just the natural. Because I think there's too many people sitting in churches that know of a historical Jesus, but they don't know him And what he's done, and the impact that all of his life, his death, resurrection, ascension, his place in heaven now means very little. It does not affect the way they live because they have no real knowledge other than, yeah, I know Jesus. I can read about Jesus in the Bible. I read my Bible and it says that Jesus died on a cross. They can nod when you explain things to them. But how easy is it for all of us to do that? You make an estimation based on an event, but we don't know what that event really accomplished. And I know for myself that when it comes to the work of Christ, His life, His atonement, His His, His ascension, His resurrection, I know enough to believe in Him And place my trust in Him. But you know what? Every time I study or read about it, there's more to know. There's a greater impact that should be on our lives. Because I believe that what Jesus did from His birth to today probably has far more reaching impact than we may ever know. It was a massive undertaking, wasn't it? For God to rescue pitiful Wretched souls like us. It wasn't snap his fingers and we made it. It required him sending his son. So events without interpretation are just that. They're facts. So Paul is saying, listen, I, I know of the historical Christ. I know of the events. But I don't know him that way anymore. I know something about those events. I've had a revelation of what those events mean to me. So I no longer judge others simply by their flesh or by their status in the world or who they are or what they've done. I view them as souls that have been bought with a price. So what does he go on to say after that? He says that he no longer knows Christ according to the flesh. So then verse 17, which we all know, therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that's my title. Behold, all things have become new. He now knows Jesus and all the events in his life, and he understands what's been done. Therefore, he can say, listen, because of what Jesus has done, because he came to earth, entered into this pitiful dark realm, lived a perfect sinless life, gave himself on the cross to suffer and die, in the grave, raised, and ascended. He can now say, therefore, if you or me or himself or any of us in here are in Christ, we are a new creation. Why? Because he knows what Jesus has done. And if you're in him, and I know that's a very big subject, But if you're united to him and his work, you are a new creation. You are altogether new. You couldn't be in him and not be a new creation. Because that's how we know Jesus. We know what he's accomplished. We know what he's done. We can't say that we are in Christ and live the way we want. Doesn't he say we are a new creation? If you're a new creation, that implies something that's never been before. It says, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Something has got to give. Something has gone away, and something is now all new. Or Paul's a liar, one or the other. Something's not right. We're going, to, we're going to agree with that, right? That any man who's in this Christ that Paul knows now, not in a historical sense or in just a matter of a bunch of historic events, but anyone who is in that Christ that Paul knows is a new creation. There's something altogether different about him because there's altogether something different about Jesus Christ. So what has Jesus done? I mean, we're not gonna <laughs> we'll be here we'll be here all week. <laughs> but we can mention a few things. Jesus Christ lived the life perfectly sinless, gave that life on a cross, died to bear the sins. Of you and me. Went to the grave for three days. But God rose. Raised him from the dead. Justifying. Vindicating. That everything he said he was and did. Was right. And true. He conquered death. I always like when after his resurrection. He would meet the disciples. They were amazed. Well they knew who he was. But what they're really looking at is here's a creation, here is a man, here is a new man, a new type of human, a new person who, even though he's the same Christ, he's died, he went in the grave, and now I'm looking at someone who's on the other side of the grave. Tell me you wouldn't be amazed. Tell me that wouldn't move you to know that your Savior is standing there going, listen, You saw me die, you saw me suffer, you saw me die, you know I was in the grave. Now you see me on the other side of death. If I'm in him, I'm I'm on the other side of death then. So who is, if I ask you this question, who is the Christ that you are in? Who's the Christ that you are united to? Or the Bible will mention about being married to, in a way, in an analogy. Are you married to this one who has accomplished all these things and therefore you are now benefiting from all that he's done in every way? Or do we just say, yeah, I'm in Christ? Well, there's something powerful about who Jesus is. And it should be in our lives. So when when the Bible talks about Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, he talks about, Paul talks about Jesus in relation to the first Adam. Right? The first Adam was made a living soul. Right? The first Adam was created by God in the image of God, was given life By God, right? I mean, we know in the beginning that everything was good, right? We don't even know what that we we've never known that. But here, the first Adam, it says, was made a living soul. The last Adam is made a quickening spirit. The last Adam implying what? That this is a altogether new humanity. This is Jesus Christ coming to earth, being born as a baby. Growing as a child, becoming an adult, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit in the Jordan, being tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. Identifying so closely with us that when He died, it says we died. When He rose, we rose. It says... It tells us that he is altogether a new generation of humans. This is the restoration that the Old Testament was talking about. This, this bringing back of everything to new. You really think God was going to let the devil win? I mean, did you really think he was going to go, huh, it's all messed up in the garden, it's over. Never mind. He didn't do that, did he? Everything is about him being glorified in the making things new, the reformation or the restoration of all things back to what he designed and planned. When he says, listen, I do a new thing in Isaiah 43. I do a new thing. Or... I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. When he says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation or a creature, what does that mean to you? I hope it means more than what most people in Christianity sees it as virtually nothing. They just it doesn't it just means my past is forgiven and um, that's it. I'm good. I think we're doing Jesus a great injustice if that's all we do. Because He wants to be lived through us as we are in Him. So if He is... If in Him we then are a new creature... And it says that old things have passed away and all things become new. Now, we know that our bodies didn't become new yet. We know that our minds didn't automatically become new yet. But God's not done, is he? He didn't just save you to go live in the way you want, like it doesn't matter. We're part of a bigger picture, if you you believe it or not. There is a gigantic plan of which we are a tiny part of. But it's all about Him restoring everything to the way it was, to His glory. So the old things, and I'm only going to mention a few because we don't have time. I forgot to start the stopwatch. But our old man in Adam, our sin nature was dealt with. This is, this is something Romans 6 You wouldn't know that just from seeing a man die on a cross, would you? You wouldn't know that just by observing the event of a crucifixion. You wouldn't know that just by watching him be placed in a grave. But how do you know that when you are united to him, you're united to him in his death, and your old man was crucified with him? Our new man in Christ... If you're buried with him in his likeness, aren't you going to be like him in his resurrection? Aren't you, when you're baptized, isn't that the scripture we always use? You die in him and you're raised to newness of life. It sounds like some kind of living has to happen after that. No? Some kind of life is going to happen after that. Something's going to happen. How about our slavery to sin? Our bondage to sin? Romans chapter 7. We now, we have freedom from sin. Roman, or Hebrews, oh, the book of Hebrews. Should study it sometime. There's so much in there about the old and the new. But you have the old priesthood, the old priesthood is the old. The old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, where priests were sinful in themselves and died and had to be replaced. That's the old Levitical priesthood is now replaced by who? Jesus who's after the order of Melchizedek who lives forever. One who has made and we'll say this, you know the old sacrifice old sacrificial system is the old done away with. We're no longer I haven't seen a bull or a goat in here yet. And if you bring one in, we're chasing it out. Because there's only one Once-for-all sacrifice that now replaces all that, has fulfilled all that. And it's that sacrifice that makes us complete. The old Levitical sacrifices could never make those who brought them perfect. They couldn't even deal with the sin. Now we have a once-for-all sacrifice. We have the old sacrifices in Hebrews 10, the once-for-all in Hebrews 9... How about our approach, our access to God? Has that changed since Jesus did his work? The Old Testament tells us what? That there was no access into the Holy of Holies. That was forbidden. One person went in there once a year. And when he came back out, what happened? The veil closed. That was it. The Holy Spirit was testifying to us that there was no access to God under that system. But what happened when Jesus died? What veil, where, and how did it rip? The veil in the temple was torn in two from where? Top to bottom. That means we now have, because of His blood, access into the Holy of Holies. We now can come boldly to the throne of grace. Is that a new thing? It is a new thing. How about the old covenant? The law. Oh, wow. Hebrews has a lot to say about that. That because we now are under a new covenant, again, a new way by which we are before God righteous. But that new covenant is expressed in life in the spirit. Before it was the law, sacrifices and blood and animals. The things that you had to do to just... I can't imagine the amount of animals... I can't imagine the amount of reminders of how sinful I am bringing this thing, I don't know how many times, it must have been incessant amount of animals. Just the reminder of how sinful we are by constantly bringing these animals leaves you with a conscience that just says, I'm guilty. Jesus comes, offers himself spotless, And He goes into the Holy of Holies with His own blood and makes a once-for-all sacrifice. That's new. That's a new way. I've already mentioned the first Adam, which brought in nothing but sin and death and disorder on the earth. The last Adam is the restoration of what was lost, man's glory and dominion over his creation. So when all things become new, all things new evidences itself in a new way of living. So in verse 18, he goes on and says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Uh, He says there, now all things are of God. What all things? The all things that are new. All the things that are new. All the things that have been accomplished on our behalf through Jesus. All things are from God. If you turn over to Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And we talk about all things. We're talking about all the things that are new. In verse 13, he says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And by Him all things were created that are in heaven and on our earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the first, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works... Yet now he has reconciled. Now, if all things are of God, if all these things are, if, if all things, if all things are of God, all these things that are new, are you included? Are you included in all these things of God that he has? What does it say in Colossians? Reconciled to himself through Christ. You know, I started this study with the, just, I, just. there's very little, in or there's enough in here, but the idea of being reconciled, is a big deal. It's a big deal. But reconciliation, God himself has reconciled all things. And if all things are of him, and we are now a part of Christ and all the new things, we are part of that plan. We are part of that reconciliation of all of the things that are going to be restored. So, if all things are being reconciled, and in Romans 5, we can just write it down, I'm just going to read it. He also mentions there that if for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through Christ, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, I know none of you in here was an enemy of God. Yes, you were. It says we were all enemies of God. Even the wonderful Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, as zealous as he was, was an enemy of God. And yet God reconciled us while we were what? Trying harder? No. He reconciled us while we were enemies. Tell me there isn't a great love involved in there. Tell me there isn't something that God will get glory from when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ and we have been in Him and we've participated of all He has provided for us and we have now lived right and God judges us And God can say, Well done. These are my people. Look, they did good things. These are my redeemed. I provided for them everything they need, I made them new creations. What pleasure and glory will that bring to God when you and I can stand there and say, I was in Christ. And I lived my life pleasing because of what He's given and done for me. And God can go, I'm, I'm glorified in that. He's glorified in that. He's not going to be glorified in sending people to hell. There's some glory in His judgment, yes. I would much rather Him be glorified in you and I living the life pleasing to Him. So that at the, end of our, at the end of our lives, when we stand there and we all appear at the judgment seat, we can say, yes, I was in Christ. And everything He provided, He provided to me and it was all new. And I walked in it. And I lived it. And I made access of it. And my life was an expression of love to Him. You don't think he'll be glorified in his children that live well? That do good deeds? You should be motivated by that. So when we think of... When we think of being reconciled, a reconciliation implies, first of all, an alienation. A separation. I mean, if you... If you're told in the Bible that if you come to the altar and you know a brother has something against you, what are you supposed to do? You leave your gift at the altar and you go do what? You're reconciling with somebody who has a difference there. There's a problem, right? You're reconciling a relationship. Husbands and wives... How many times have you heard the term irreconcilable differences? Yeah, whatever. It's an excuse to get a divorce, isn't it? It's just an excuse. Irreconcilable differences. But in the Bible, we're told that if a wife leaves her husband, she's to stay single or be reconciled to her husband. That's the only options. Reconciliation involves Something that at one time was a relationship and there was a union and an agreement and now there's none. There's, a, some, there's something blocking, there's an offense, there's something hindering a relationship. So when we're reconciled, it's a literal sense, this is what Webster says, reconcile means, a literal sense is to call back into Union. And Vines likes to say, a change or an exchange. A change from enmity to friendship means to reconcile. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I know at one point I was not reconciled to God. I, I couldn't. There was no way. I mean, do you understand that on your best day for a week straight or a month or a year... You could never be reconciled to God. You could never reconcile yourself. You could never bring your account up to the level that was necessary for you to be in union with God. And I had a dream a couple weeks ago. I don't know if I would started looking at this, but I had a dream. It was one of those dreams where you have it and you kind of wake up startled because it seems so real that it was almost terrifying. And I don't know. I'm not saying it was spiritual, I'm just saying, but this dream was is that I had got I was down in a pit and all the walls were pitch black. And I could see some light at the top. It was like a well kind of a thing. And I'm clinging to the sides. And I thought all I gotta do is climb up to the light. I just gotta get up there. And every time I'd reach for something, the walls would just disappear and crumble. There'd be no grip. And the harder I tried, the further I slid down. You want to talk about terrifying? I woke up terrified, but I woke up like this. Lord, save me! Because I realized that was going to be my only way out. But, you know, you wake up and you think, that's religion, that's humanity, that's people who think they can just, I'm good and I just kind of reach my way up. But you know what? There's nothing there. They're slipping further and further down. They have no way out of that pit. So back in Coli, Corinthians, I'm going to try to finish this up. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've already read that if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God in Romans 5 and how in Colossians 1 it says, and he reconciled all things to himself and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. The first thing we know about this in verse 18 is that the reconciliation of us to God is initiated by who and who alone? It has to be God. It always has been God. He's the one. While you and you and you and you and you and me were enemies and sinners, He reconciled us to Himself. We didn't need to reconcile him to us, did we? Did he, do it? did he ever change? No, we're the ones that got, you know, the balance, just you could never get it reconciled. So how did he do it? He reconciles us through his Son. It says in verse 19 that it is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. To just think about that once a day, twice a week, to remind yourself of the good news, the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. But to understand that while you were at odds with Him, before you were even born, When you were hateful, sinful, disregarding, irreverent, could care less about God, had an attitude, didn't want anything to do with Him, He was reconciling your account through His Son on the cross. Why? So that you could be back in unity with Him. These are the all things new. Aren't they? This is, how, this is how God in His wonderful grace and mercy and His grand plan of things has chosen to reconcile miserable sinners like us to Himself that we could be part of all things new. Because when it all hits the fan and it all comes to an end and all things are new, you're going to want to be there. When there's a new heaven and a new earth and this is all burned up and gone, you're going to want to be in the new. <laughs> you're going to want to be in the new. And if you find yourself and you know that you're one of those in a dark pit and you know you're not reconciled to God, you need to think about it because the day can come when anyone who's not reconciled to Him is judged as they are a sinner. It's Him in verse 21. It's Him who knew no sin was made sin for us. And we all know He never became a sinner. I'm not going to have to go through all that, am I? Not in here. He bore our sins. His Our sins were imputed to him and he bore the penalty as if he committed them. He never became a sinner that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, what does he tell us in verse 20? He says that now that we are reconciled, we are ambassadors for Christ, or at least he's including himself. If you want to include yourself, I think you should. As though God were what? Beseeching? Pleading? Through us. Is it okay then if Brother Tom or John or myself or anybody else gets up here and implores you or beseeches you? Come on. Is that okay? Or are we so Calvinistic that it's like, if they get it, they get it? Because Paul is saying here that he's beseeching these people. He's imploring them. He's pleading with these people. It's as if God was speaking through them, and he says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God know that your your sins have all been imputed to his son you now are in a right relationship with god all things have become new you are now part of the grand plan let's live it one more verse if you turn there chapter uh, john chapter 17 John chapter seventeen. You know Jesus is is done with his earthly ministry, and we all know this is his high priestly prayer. But I was looking at I I guess Brother Tom read this a few weeks back, and I thought about I just looked at this and I thought this is this is what Jesus came to do. He came to reconcile people like you and I to Himself. And in chapter 17, verse 3, he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you you sent. I have glorified you on the earth, and I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What work? He hadn't gone to the cross yet. Finished what work? He finished the work of so identifying with you and I, that he is now qualified to become our perfect sacrifice. He's finished the work. Verse 21, and he's praying for these and us, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Is it possible? Is it possible that what Jesus came to do was to do the work that God gave him to do, and that was to reconcile you and I to the Father. And is it therefore then not our responsibility to exhibit by our lives and by how we are in this assembly to the world that we are those who are reconciled to God? Because that's what I think if we thought about it, that's how Paul sees it. When he says, whether we live or die, we should live pleasing to him. You and I, and this church, and we'll probably say it again, we are exhibiting to the world who we are in Christ. Are we exhibiting the facts? that all things have become new that we are in him and that we are one he is in us we in him god in him i mean you put the make the circle but to be reconciled to god means we have all things new we are part of his grand new creation and paul writes to these corinthians and i think to us that we need to live like that, to be pleasing to Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank, you for, we thank You for all that You have done for us. We thank You for sending Your Son to identify with us in such a way that as He is our pioneer, He is our forerunner who has made His way into and behind the veil, that we now have access to your very presence through him. We thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. I just ask that you would, would sow your word into our hearts, bless your word, and cause it to bring forth fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand up, please. sing Honor Glory to For him. prayer for anything? Any announcements? Yes? Okay, we can do that. Anybody else? Uh, uh, Jeannie and Mark. All right, let's pray. Anybody else? I think that's it, right? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and by the authority that's in your name, we ask that you would just give Mark a good trip. You'd keep him safe. That you'd provide a, a safe trip and a peaceful trip. That you'd bring him back safely. And We pray for uh, Mary Louise's request that uh, your mercy would be upon this woman. And that in Jesus' name, you would, you would minister to her. And that blood pressure would would be corrected. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. If you can say it, tell somebody that I am a new creature in Christ and all things have become new and you're free to go.